There we go. We'll start over. There we go. So just, just want to begin with a few words of thanksgiving. Uh, first to Amy, and I'll say more about her later. I'm going to start calling her uh, Guillaume uh, later, and you'll understand why in a few minutes. That's a little Calvin joke. Um, but want to thank the Adult Ed Subcommittee uh, for the space to do this. I want to thank uh, you, the church, and the personnel committee that granted uh, and grants the pastors weeks of study leave, uh, without which this this could not happen. So I took a good week of time to spend uh, going through these pages or finishing up the book, and that was very helpful. And I want to thank also uh, my colleagues, uh, Jacob and Whitney in particular, because while I was away reading Calvin and while Larry was leading many of you on a trip to Israel, they were holding down the fort here. So uh, all of that has uh, been helpful and fruitful. And I want to thank you for the curiosity and the interest that you're bringing. I, I, in conversations, uh, I've just noted there's an energy here, and I know it's not just about me, but something that we're going to share and explore together. Uh, like Calvin, Calvin. Uh, and I know some of you really know him and his works well. One of you have read his institutes in French. Um, I did not do that while I was on study leave. Um, but for many of you, perhaps this is a name and a book that you feel like you should know something about because you're Presbyterian and you've heard of him. Uh, and in many respects, that was the energy that launched me on this study. Uh, I was downstairs in the church library uh, looking for something to read, avoiding my emails. No. Uh, and, uh, and here was this book. Um, and I started to just open up the front page because I had started reading it maybe three or four years ago. And as I'm often one to do, I'll start something and it'll be great, but then it'll start to dissipate. And I, I said, no, maybe I should try again here. There we go. Maybe I should try again here. And I found myself in my reading, wanting to keep reading, that I, this is a heavy book, literally, but I experienced a lightning, a raising up, uh, a joy even, uh, in its pages that kept me going. Um, but I probably would not have finished, and this is where I get to Amy, uh, because around that time she was knocking on my door again about teaching and, and said, well, Patrick, why don't you teach? And I said, okay, what do I teach about? And I thought, well, I could teach from this. Um, and without her insistence, uh, we'll get to Pharrell here, Guillaume, in a second, but her, her patient and welcoming persistence, uh, I would... I wouldn't have finished this, honestly, and I got to finish it, and so I'm really just glad. And what I want to do with us and with you um, is what I – this is the, the course title. Um, in the fall – like, you know I like my puns. In the fall, Calvin, Calvin is all about the fall of humankind and Adam, but I'm talking about the fall as in October – um, I endeavored to read what I managed to avoid in seminary, and it was true. I, I went to a Presbyterian seminary called McCormick in Chicago, uh, but in the you know the variety of choices, it just turned out I didn't I didn't end up reading much of John Calvin's Institutes, um, and I wanted to get back to it. Um, and he is definitely one of our more argumentative, uh, but also seminal theologians and leader. And so I want us to reflect on his book and share what he has to give us. Um, and I want to use two guiding metaphors for what I hope for this class or what I've experienced as well. Uh, the first is domestic. Many of us live in homes where there is a formal living room and a formal dining room. How many of you have such houses? Uh, not as many as before, but yeah, you, you kind of walk past those rooms in these houses often to get to the, ba the main living room or the kitchen where you spend most of your time. Uh, There is a feeling I've had in reading these, this book that I, I've discovered rooms in the house that we've passed by that have been part of our house, uh, but that there's something to be reclaimed about what we can do in those rooms, what those rooms have given us, and maybe what we've lost track of. The other image that I want to use is of this phrase that uh, you see from Second Kings. The priest Hilkiah has given me a book, and this is from the story of King Hosiah. King Hosiah was the uh, king of the southern kingdom of Judah in the 7th century BCE, and his grandfather 
before him really led Israel or Judah, excuse me, astray in its worship of foreign gods. And this king Hosea sent his secretary, Stephan, to the high priest, Hilkiah. And he was wanting to pay the workers in the in the temple. Not the, yes, in the temple. Uh, and so he sends him on this errand. And so the, the, the secretary, Stephan, goes in and and the high priest, Hilkiah, says, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And so the secretary takes the book back to the king and says, I, I, I did your first job. I paid the workers of the temple. But oh, by the way, it's almost like an afterthought. He says, oh, the priest Hilkiah has given me a book. And so King Hosea reads the book and it causes him to rend his garments and to, in a way, despair because he finds out and reads all the ways in which Israel has left behind its true home in God and the worship of the one God. And so King Hosea embarks on this reform movement, uh, tearing down sacred poles of false gods and all these kinds of things. Um, For me and maybe for us, this book is like a sort of rediscovery of something that's been in the library. It's like the room in the house you haven't been in, but it's been here with us for a long time. But maybe we come back to it and say, oh, what have we what have we what have we missed out on? What have we lost? Uh, and not come at it out of a sense of despair and oh we're you know we're lost sheep, we're so wrong, but there's maybe a gift, a gift of renewal that I think is very possible in these pages. Um, you'll see, and I think you maybe if you're paying attention, you're picking up that I've got a positive spin on the institutes and a positive spin on Calvin. And there's a lot in here that's hard, and there's a lot in his life. It was hard. Uh, some of us were talking about a man who who <laughs> was burned to death uh, in some respects because of his opposition to what Calvin preached um, in Geneva. Uh, but there's much in here that I want us to enjoy. Uh, I could have called this class Time for Our Calvinoscopy. <laughs> and I'm not going to extend that metaphor any further. But I just did. But anyway. Um, <laughs> but ding, thank you. Got some homers in the crowd. Thank you very much. My mom was going to come. I was really counting on her, but she didn't show up. Thank you. So thank you for asking, for laughing at my jokes. Um, we could have called it the Calvinoscopy, which has kind of a uh, sound to it. Um, and it's perhaps well-deserved because Calvin has a reputation. He, oh, I'm sorry. When you think of Calvin, that's what you think of, I think. Very stern-looking, dark hues. Look at the wrinkles around his eyes. Not somebody you want to have over for dinner. Uh, how about him giving the children's sermon? Uh, I, I'm not so sure. Um, he suffered from really significant health issues for most of his life. So I, that's probably an accurate portrayal of how he felt most days. He was preaching and teaching and reforming the church. Um, but I have to say that I think Calvin has a sense of humor. He's hilarious. Because he says something like this. I have a natural love of brevity. <laughs> when I read that when I was about halfway through this book, I, I LOL'd. I was like, ha, 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 that's a good one, Calvin. Um, in fact, he talks about how this book was the one he wanted to be long so that when you read the commentaries, he wanted to be briefer in those because those were, you know, He's already talked about it in this book, but he's he has a love of brevity. I think this is Calvin as close as he gets to a full-bellied laugh. That's it right there. That's his, that's his hopeful. But that's the Calvin I want us to, to have in mind today. We think of Calvin as austere, austere not a lover of worldly delights, somebody who rejects the beauty and gifts of this world because he's so focused on heaven or hell and who's in or who's out, uh, what we're doing wrong and what we need to do better. But he said this, there is no portion of the world, however minute, that does not exhibit at least some sparks of beauty. While it is impossible to contemplate the vast and beautiful fabric as it extends around 
without being overwhelmed by the immense weight of glory. We think of Calvin and his total depravity of man doctrine that is attributed to him in his theology, and we think he has a very low opinion of humankind, a very glass-half-empty view of man and woman, even of infants. But then we have this. Men, and forgive me, the, the, the masculine language pervades throughout here, but he wrote, men have in their persons a factory where the innumerable operations of God are carried on, a magazine stored with treasures of inestimable value. Man is a microcosm, that is a miniature world, as being a rare specimen of divine power, wisdom, and goodness, and containing within himself or herself wonders sufficient to occupy our minds if we are so willing to employ them. Calvin quotes King David, who says that not only does the human race a bright mirror of the Creator's works, but that infants hanging on their mother's breasts have tongues eloquent enough to proclaim his glory without the aid of other orators. In week two, we will encounter verbiage that seems in direct opposition to this point of view. But we must remember, this is where Calvin starts and this is where Calvin ends. We think of Calvin as the lawyer, which he was, which is why I think half of us in this room probably would love him. We think of someone who lives in his head, whose spirituality is dense, academic, formal, intellectual, rigorous. But we also have this. The knowledge of God, which we are invited to cultivate, is not that which, resting satisfied with empty speculation, only flutters in the brain, but a knowledge which will prove substantial and fruitful wherever it is duly perceived and rooted in the heart. Calvin returns to that notion frequently in this book, that it's not just a head thing, it's a heart thing. And his spirituality is not one of just rigor and academic rigor and parsing every word of the book, but saying that in seeking God, the most direct path and fittest method is not to attempt with presumptuous curiosity to pry into God's essence, which is rather to be adored than minutely discussed, but to contemplate him in his works by which God draws near, becomes familiar, and in a manner communicates himself to us. To this the apostle referred when he said that we need not go far in search of him because by the continual working of his power, he dwells in every one of us. I was surprised when I read these words. And these are the words that made me want to read more. You know when you have that uh, dinnertime conversation or conversation starter where somebody will say, well, if you could name any one person in history with whom you could have dinner or have a conversation, who would it be? And for years I've struggled with that question. Not struggled, struggled, but I don't know, that Abraham Lincoln, that'd be kind of cool. Or maybe the Apostle Paul. Or uh, in my more pious moments, of course, I would say Jesus. But... He's in the book. I can, I can read about him there. I know my answer now. I would love to spend time with John Calvin. I would like to ask him about what he wrote and his world, and I would love to tell him and show him ours, and to show him Westminster, and show him the Presbyterian Church USA and the global Christian movement, and have him be confronted with the, a reality that in so many respects is different from the one that we know today, uh, but also because it is inhabited by human beings, is not that different either. Um, he would have a point of view, and I would love to know that, and I think it would be of benefit for all of us. So in these three weeks, we're going to play with that, and there's no way we're going to summarize this book or the life of Calvin in just three sessions. Uh, Amy, no, I'm not signing up to do this all year yet, but we'll see. Um, but we're going to hit some of the highlights, uh, gain some initial familiarity, uh, and save a survey course for later, and maybe you'll be intrigued to read on as well. Um, I want to reset, as we've done already this morning, our sense of the frown of Calvin and turn that frown upside down, as we say to our children, 
uh, a little bit, to see that there's something in this that is worthy of joy and adoration, uh, to kindle your curiosity even more, um, and to see Calvin as a human being who was passionate about loving God and loving neighbor, and very passionate about the church, the church to which he gave his life. Uh, so his, who was Calvin? Uh, this isn't going to be a class of many facts and figures, but context is important. So I'm just going to show uh, 10 minutes of a, a video that gives some background and, and, and establishes the context of this book uh, in the Protestant Reformation and in Calvin's own life. So if the technology works, uh, as I've some of you were here this morning when I set it up, so if it doesn't work, you know I tried. Um, okay. Boom. So far, so good. People think of Calvin as an abstract theologian, which is the last thing in the world he was. He was preeminently a church theologian. He wrote from within the church for the church, to try to help the church understand and live its faith in a more fruitful fashion. The image that we have of Calvin as an austere, remote uh, individual is really not who he was at all. Uh, he was a pastor, first of all. All of the theological work he did, uh, he wrote, he wrote for the church, not for the academy. So the one thing I think that we can take away most clearly from him is that theological work is not something that's done uh, for academic purposes, but something that's done for the life of the church. From the beginning, Calvin's theology is grounded in an event that is as thickly political, social, ethical, communal as it is in some isolated sense theological. Uh, there were, in fact, uh, theological issues which over time became distorted. And the, the most uh, popular one, of course, is indulgences and salvation by works and grace. So there was a lot of ferment, and a lot of ferment within the Roman community itself. Across the period of the Middle Ages, the, the practice of indulgences had changed. Originally, indulgences was something the church could hand out based on its understanding of its treasury of merits. The saints, over the years, had accumulated enough good deeds and holy actions and that these were then transferred to the church and it could then give people access to that treasury of merit through indulgences. What got more complicated was when indulgences got to be something you can purchase. The older Protestant narrative was that the church was so filled with abuses that some sort of reform was inevitable and that Luther came along and triggered it was the happenstance, but that uh, something had to change. The thinking now is that that's kind of a flattering picture of, uh, of what Luther was about and what the Reformation was about, and that it was much more complicated than that. But there were clearly problems. People buying their way into church positions, that's called simony, that was a problem. Another one was pluralism. Pluralism was when one clergy member had several different positions in the church. All of this yielded an upheaval that allowed the church to begin to rethink how it was formed, what it thought, what was most valuable, and the Reformation was born. John Calvin was born at Noyon, a celebrated town in Picardy, on the 10th July in the year of our Lord, 1509. His father's name was Gerard Calvin. His mother's Joan France. Both of them persons of good repute and in easy circumstances. A phenomenon that shaped all the reformers was a little event that took place in 1516 when Erasmus published the first edition uh, of his so-called Novum Instrumentum, the, the first text-critical Greek New Testament that the world had ever seen. Calvin was very fortunate in that he got knocked around a little bit in his daddy's world and stuff, getting an education. And there were a couple of choices, and one was the Sorbonne, which was the big official place. To this day, it's a great institution. It was kind of an arm of the Inquisition. It was digging up who heretics were. It was reporting to Rome. It was doing everything it could. And um, he didn't go there. He got to go to a much more liberated place, 
where the key thing would be, it goes by the name humanism. Uh, in today's churches and world, humanism often means non-God. This meant rather concern for the texts that told you what it was to be human and saying we have to have the best texts. We can't take corrupt texts. We have to have the best translations. We can't do without that. And Calvin ate it up. He was hungry for that kind of learning. So his father tells him to study law, which he does, but Calvin wants to study classical literature, and so he does both. He studied humanities. He studied what we might think of as an arts curriculum, and he studied law, but he never formally studied theology. And his very first book is actually a commentary. It's not a theological work at all. It's a commentary on the Latin author Seneca, on one of Seneca's works called On Clemency. And this was almost Calvin's signature book. He wanted to show that he was a humanist like Erasmus, like the great Erasmus. And he stays up late into the night studying both the law he had to study and studying Terence and Virgil and Homer and all these other uh, works. And then he woke up the next morning early, he probably slept four hours a night and memorized what he'd studied the night before. And that schedule of study, Beza is convinced, is what weakened his health. We do know that he was influenced in Paris by people who had started talking about Luther's ideas. The movement for reform had started to penetrate in France. But Calvin never really clarifies just how this happens and, and what influenced him particularly. So it's left as a bit of a mystery. We do know that by 1534, he clearly had started adopting Protestant ideas and was increasingly finding his life difficult in Paris where Protestants were becoming increasingly viewed as, as a danger to the state. When he found himself sort of willy-nilly pressed into the service of the Protestant Reformation uh, and he returned to scripture, he had the same kind of values uh, that he would have had as a humanist scholar. He, he had a great concern for the purity of the text, for the authenticity of the text. Luther said you can't have a reformation of the church if you don't have a reformation of letters, by which he means the printed page. Uh, the learning. Uh, he wrote a preface to an early French Bible done by his cousin, a man called Pierre Robert Olivetan. That's a sort of a sign of Protestantism if you're involved in a vernacular Bible publication. Then, of course, his key work is 1536, his first version of the Institutes. And what's really interesting about that work is that preface, and the preface is to the King of France. And that's a significant preface because he's really trying to show the French king that the French king's understanding of Protestantism is wrong. At one point, Calvin thought that he would go to Strasbourg, was um, fleeing from France and um, uh, trying to create a new home in Strasbourg. Well, he had to go south to avoid some of the armies at that point, and he finds himself traveling through Geneva. As the most direct road to Strasbourg was shut up by the wars, I had resolved to pass quickly by Geneva without staying longer than a single night in that city. A little before this, Popery had been driven from Geneva by the exertions of William Farrell and Peter Verey, but matters were not yet brought to a settled state, and the city was divided into unholy and dangerous factions. Farrell, who burned with an extraordinary zeal to advance the gospel, immediately strained every nerve to detain me, and after having learned that my heart was set upon devoting myself to private studies, for which I wished to keep myself free from other pursuits, and finding that he gained nothing by entreaties, he proceeded to utter an imprecation that God would curse my retirement and the tranquility of the studies which I sought, if I should withdraw and refuse to give assistance when the necessity was so urgent. When he gets to Geneva, he encounters a church that's already on the ground and has been formed in both its worship practices as well as its sensibilities by the Swiss reformers. And so he is walking into a situation where his ideas may not um, readily fit into their understanding of reform. It is the fall of 1536. Calvin settles in Geneva with his brother Anthony and his half-sister Marie. Calvin is soon elected to be a preacher. Shortly after that, he is appointed as professor of divinity. He now shares primary responsibility for providing worship, pastoral care, religious instruction, and administrative oversight to a city of over 10,000 people with a central cathedral and several parish churches. He is 27 years old. What is amazing to me about his use of language is how much Calvin must have attended as he wrote, not just to the content of what he was saying, 
but how his words were going to affect the desires, the inclinations, the hopes, the feelings of his audience. So he's using language to cultivate in his reader a disposition of faith, a disposition of hope. The intractable problems of poverty and hunger and tribal and ethnic warfare and all of us uh, interreligious uh, conflict. It's so important to remember that though the wrong be off so strong, God is the ruler yet. You know? And I think Calvin's theology is the theology that uh, fleshes that out for us in, in wonderful ways. Calvin did not bring the Reformation to Geneva. It predated him. Then when Calvin arrived, only intending to stay overnight, Farel and his colleagues who were trying to work the Reformation into Geneva were finding things very difficult because a lot of folks who had voted for the Reformation had not intended any major religious changes. But his early years in Geneva were very difficult. Uh, he only managed to stay initially for two years and then he and Farel and others were kicked out. Because the city government would not allow the church to decide who could appropriately receive the Lord's Supper, Calvin and his colleagues choose not to administer the sacrament at services on Easter of 1538. The council then removes the pastors from office and gives them three days to leave Geneva. For John Calvin himself, the, the doctrine of divine providence was not something that we simply stood in awe of and uh, uh, was surrounded completely in mystery. but. but he wanted to discern the ways of God in the ordinary events of life. The problems with his doctrine are that people have seen as that it impinges on human freedom or it seems to make God so closely tied to evil. But Calvin believed that you could understand rightly how humans were responsible and yet God was still sovereign and in the end for him it was always about protecting and promoting God's sovereignty and glory. I think every great expert on Calvin would say he didn't start with a popular picture of sovereignty. He started with the picture of the glory and grandeur and grace of God. But glory in the sense of astoundingly beautiful. That God is a God who relates to us not just as a rule giver or as a father demanding obedience or even just as a mother who nurtures a child but God relating to us as the one who stands in utter and complete and irresistible splendor that we desire and love and find great pleasure in being in the presence of. Okay. Somebody help me to get the lights. That would be... While we're getting this back up, I want to repeat what she just closed by saying. God relating to us as the one who stands in utter and completes and irresistible splendor that we desire and love and find great pleasure of being in the presence of. Looks like we've lost the. Here we go. Hold on one second. Okay. I think the projector just went off, so we will adjust. It's fine. <clears throat> so as it is with these videos, and there's they they, glo they gloss over so many things that are worthy of expansion. Um, his uh, having to leave Paris because uh, his friend had been his friend Nicholas Cop had been installed as the rector of uh, the school in the city, the university, and he gave a speech that was favorable to the Reformation, and many, and it created this huge uproar, uh, and many thought that perhaps Calvin had written that speech, and they escaped in the middle of the night. 
you know, literally the authorities came into the room just an hour after he left of some, something like that, that he had to go by a false name uh, when he left the city. Uh, when you read his institutes, it's combative. He, Calvin does not flee from a fight, a rhetorical fight. He spends a lot of time engaging with arguments, and uh, you heard the word popery, not potpourri, <laughs> but potpourri um, in the video. Uh, he had some not-so-kind things to say about the Pope. Um, the Pope was the Antichrist. Um, so but we hear those words, and it causes us to cringe a little bit, or at least the part of us that wants to be inclusive and embracing um, all expressions of the Christian faith. Uh, he sought unity, but he was also in exile. He was also in danger and was fighting for something that was very fragile. Uh, and so he fought hard for it. Uh, have you seen or how many of you read or know much about Alexander Hamilton? Um, he reminds me, I, I see a little bit of a Calvin in Hamilton and, and vice versa uh, in that they're both prodigious writers uh, and they seem to be never running out of energy uh, and just and had an agenda um, and had weakness too. Uh, perhaps the, the biggest difference, though, is, and I, I take these words to be true of Calvin, that he's not putting a spin on things, but you pick up on his reluctance as well, uh, that he wasn't so sure he wanted to be this big reformer. He really wanted to go and study and write in his in his quiet space. Uh, but this man, Pharrell, Guillaume, uh, literally said, if you do that, you are cursed. You're, 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 like, you're, you're, you're like Jonah, not going to Nineveh. But, um, and that's why I'm comparing him to Amy because it's, that's why I'm teaching today. As she said, no, you must teach. Um, <laughs> uh, a little bit of uh, information about the book itself um, and its history. Um, one of the reasons why um, it was written was that what Calvin had received and heard about uh, the goings-on in France in reaction to the Reformation. There was the affair of the placards. Placard? How do I say that, Phil? Is that right? All right. The placard, um, where these humanist brochures or tracts were posted all over the city on Easter, uh, including at the door of the, bed, uh, the king's bedchamber. Uh, and this, you heard about the humanist movement being very much tied to the Refor Reformation, this return to the sources, the ad fontes. And this engenders a violent response of persecution from the king. Um, and so while Calvin was in um, Geneva the first time, no, excuse me, he was in Basel, uh, he started to write this the first edition of the Institutes. Um, and I'm going to come back to that for a second. Um, and this is also from his commentary on the Psalms. Uh, just a quick side note. Calvin was not autobiographical in his writings. He really did not talk about himself much at all. So this one section of his commentary on the Psalms is the only place where he really talks about his inner life and his journey. Um, so he shares here about why he wrote the Institutes. Uh, and I'm surprised this isn't picked up in some of the videos and readings, but he talks about knowing about the shedding of innocent blood, the murder, uh, and also the slander, you know, that the the king and, the, and the, the church, the established church, framed these reformers in ways that impugned their sincerity and authenticity. Um, and he said, Calvin, my silence could not be vindicated from the charge of cowardice and treachery unless he opposes them. Um, and this is the consideration which induces him to publish the, this book. Um, Calvin, the social justice reformer, you don't think of it that way, but Calvin, who saw wrong in the world and had to write and speak out for it. Um, so the book I read is a much later version of the Institutes. The first one that he wrote was really short, and it was actually meant for the laity. Um, it was kind of like a catechismic document to teach people the faith in a very concise way. Um, so it was for people in the pews. Um, and later editions, there were five in total, uh, grew. Um, and the, the last two, this is, I think, the 1559 version. Uh, he wrote it in Latin, uh, and then he wrote his last version in French, um, which Phil has read. So uh, talk to him after class if you'd like some, <laughs> some more about that. Um, the institutes are divided into four sections. Um, 
roughly connected to God, the creator, Christ, the redeemer, the Holy Spirit, uh, and then the church. Uh, it's not so neat. I mean, he, he bounces all over the place in different topics and there's, uh, fills it. But those are the general four sections. Um, this quote, sorry, I'm going to go back to this one. His intro in the early chapters, he says, nearly the whole of sacred doctrine or wisdom consists in these two parts, knowledge of God and of ourselves. And really, that's the book. That's what he's written, um, this, this, this institutes, which he wrote this one for people in my line of work. I mean, this is for the theologians and the preachers and the church workers um, to help them with their study and to have a more complete sense of doctrine that they could bring to their preaching and their interpretation of holy texts. Um, but it really is an exposition on who and what God is and how God works and humankind and who we are um, and how you need to know one to know the other. Um, and so we spend a lot of time and and going, and we're going to hit some of that next week, especially. You heard the conversation about providence, God's providence, which is you know how God relates to the world and is making things happen. It's God is not a God who set the clock, the watch in motion, and just it ticks away without any active involvement. This is a God who's hands-on in every way, um, which inspires, but also can trouble because you think of all the ways that this world is broken, and you think, well, is God making that happen. Um, and we hear about the elect, uh, the people of God, the church. Um, and then you hear about the non-elect. Um, and so we will wrestle with some of those questions uh, next week. Um, Calvin was married. That didn't come up very much, but Calvin was married. Um, he married a widow who had children of her own. And uh, he took them in and cared for them as though they were his own. Um, and when she died, uh, he said of her that she was a, uh, a great help to his ministry and he pledged to her that he would continue to watch the kids. Essentially, he put it in a much more lofty language than that. But um, again, I just want to give little snippets of Calvin the human um, and the studier of humanist documents. Um, I want to... Um, Go now a little bit skipping ahead, but I want us to go to the fruits of John Calvin. Which time we have? Yeah, we're doing pretty well. <clears throat> oh, I'll, I'll do this now too. Um, this was his last, some of the last words he said to his friends before he died. Uh, he said, "I've willed what is good; that my vices have always displeased me." He was aware of his lack of patience, <laughs> and cited that as a real problem. Um, so there was some self-awareness there. He said that my vices have always displeased me and at the root of that, the fear of God has been in my heart. He wanted to make sure that we could say of him that the disposition was good and that the evil be forgiven me. Um, he's buried or was buried in an unmarked tomb. So we, no one knows where, where Calvin lays, lies, is laid uh, today. Um, and that's to his point. You know, I said he was not autobiographical. He didn't want... A, all the attention on himself. It was really about the glory of God and anything that got in the way of that. And I mean, anything that got in the way of the glory of God, he went after it. Um, he didn't want the attention, but clearly we, we have much to attend to. Uh, he did not want Calvin worship. <laughs> and so that's not what we're going to do in this class is be a worshiper of Calvin. But I want to go to some fruits. Um, because I think, and I think this is going to help us next week as we look ahead to, especially in the places that are troubling, is to see where they lead him. Uh, you judge a tree by its fruits, right? You judge, um, where does this all go? Uh, if we, if we were to consume the institutes and the worldview and the theology and the scriptural understanding that he would want us to believe, what would, what would we be like? Um, and so there are several places where I, could turn. Uh, he talks about prayer in such a beautiful way. We could spend a whole week on just Calvin and prayer. Um, he dissects the Lord's Prayer in ways that uh, changes how I say it already and what I'm thinking. So we could do that. We might do that in week three. We'll see. But I want to go to his the fruits of his theology in terms of his ethical life, his how this leads him to live 
morally in the world and how he views other people. So I'm just going to take two commandments and just see what he has to say. And I'm sorry there's a lot of just reading his words, but the words are really the power. There's so much behind them that I want you to have some of those today. So this, I go ahead. Yeah, the sixth commandment. I should quiz you, but it's thou shalt not kill. Um, Calvin takes a view of very much how Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount takes the law and says, you know, you have heard it was said that you should not commit adultery, but I say to you truly, if you have, uh, if you look at a woman with lustful eyes, you have committed adultery with you, with her. So he takes the law, Jesus does, and takes it to its fullest manifestation. And it's not just about checking the box, but really having your whole life aligned with the spirit of the law as well as the actual letter. So here too, Calvin says, the Lord has bound the whole human race, uh, not just the church, the whole human race, that parentheses is me, not him, uh, by a kind of unity, the safety of all ought to be considered as entrusted to each. All violence and injustice and every kind of harm from which our neighbor's body suffers is prohibited. Accordingly, we are to require, we are required faithfully to do what in us lies to defend the life of our neighbor to promote whatever tends to his tranquility and to be vigilant in warding off harm and when danger comes to assist in removing it. That's a lot more than just not killing somebody. That's living your life such that your neighbor's life is more important than your own. Uh, You do everything you can for your neighbor. Here we go again with... perhaps a surprising way of seeing humanity through Calvin's eyes. We don't think he'd say this, but he says, man is both the image of God and our flesh. Wherefore, if we would not violate the image of God, we must hold the person of man sacred. If we would not divest ourselves of humanity, we must cherish our own flesh. Therefore, it is not enough to merely refrain from shedding blood. If any act you do or plot to do, If in wish and design you conceive what is adverse to another's well-being and safety, you have the guilt of murder. Live up to that one. Um, Little side note now here, he talks a lot about the law in the institutes, the law, the the rules, the the, the inherited regulations of living that we receive with the Mosaic Code. Um, And perhaps like you're feeling as you hear this, like who can live up to that entirely? And that's one of the, the, the purposes of the law, as Calvin sees it, is to help us to see how, fall, how far we fall short. Um, and that will turn us even more vigorously to, to Christ and to the way in which his righteousness covers us and makes us righteous as well. So, again, the, the emphasis isn't on us so much as Christ and what God does with us in him. So uh, let's go to another commandment. Thou shalt not steal. So he says, basically, you know, there's more than this than just taking somebody's wallet or stealing their lands. Um, we defraud our neighbors to their hurt if we decline any of the duties which we are bound to perform toward them. So let it be our constant aim faithfully to lend our aid and counsel to all. Again, I capitalize that because it's notable. So as to assist them in retaining their property. And not only so, but let us contribute to the relief of those whom we see under the pressure of difficulties, assisting their want out of our abundance. If that's where the Institutes leads us, then I want to go with the Institutes. Um, if that's where Calvin's preaching, I want to I want to pay attention. I want to stay with it. And he summarizes the law that our mind must be completely filled with love to God, and then this love must forthwith flow out toward our neighbor. Um, I'll pause there. We often, I, I, we hear the, the great commandment of Christ, you know, love God and love your neighbor as you love who? Yourself. And often at Calvin, I think, would, this would drive Calvin crazy because he would hear in contemporary society a, a statement along the lines of, so you need, to t- you need to love yourself. The emphasis on that commandment is loving yourself because if you don't love yourself, how can you love your neighbor? Um, that's true. I'm, I'm not teaching us away from that. Calvin would say, though, we're already great in the loving ourselves department. Um, So no, it isn't about loving yourself. It's about loving your neighbor. Um, 
I think we hold those in tension. I think there's, uh, there's truth in both of those sides of that coin. Um, but he clearly would have a point of view in the direction of, no, this isn't about, the point of Jesus saying this is not so you would have a greater love for yourself, but that you would attend to that love in, in your neighbor. Um, yeah. Yeah. Without doing one with the other, you lose I think he would not, he would not disagree with that, but he want he wanted to point your attention and emphasis though on on the neighbor and 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 mitigate how much we attend and love ourselves that even even if we have a poor conception of ourselves and focus on, you know, our, our, if we have a low self-esteem, and I'm just trying on words here, but if we, if we would tell that person with a low self-esteem, you have to love yourself in order to love others. And he would certainly agree with that. But he might even say that our excessive attention to our own self and our own needs would be a straying from the main emphasis of, of, the, of the goal. And there's a quote I didn't put on the screen, um, but has to do with this. Okay, yeah. Um, there is no need of a law to inflame a self-love already existing in excess, Calvin says. Um, no, the Lord has made self-love, as it were, the standard, there being no feeling in our nature of greater strength and vehemence in order to express how strongly we are to love our neighbor. So in other words, use the, our great self-love as the goal, the mountain to which we should climb, because we already love ourselves so much. <laughs> um, our, pre- our fundamental principle is ever to be, let a man be what he may, he is still to be loved because God is loved. So I think that gets to what you're saying too, Amy, that that love of God leads to a love of ourselves and a love of neighbor. Um, so you do begin there and, and return there um, with vehemence. Um, got a couple more minutes. So, Just a little bit about God, because well, this is where Calvin wants us to be. Um, and interesting, interestingly, Calvin does not have, as we often hear in our creeds, a list of the attributes of God, you know, omnipresent, omnipotent, ever-loving, you know, the, the kind of adjectives that we're sometimes asked to, to describe God. But he, here are some things that summarize what Calvin would say about God. It's the only thing we should worship and adore. The fountain of all goodness, uh, that's the theme for the water bubbles because he uses that metaphor a lot. And we're going to come to some water metaphors next week to talk about human corruption. Um, not only formed the world, but sustains it, governs it, preserves it, rules it, bears with it, and shields it. There's not a particle of light or wisdom or justice, sorry, or power or rectitude or genuine truth will anywhere be found which does not flow from him like a fountain and from which he is not the cause. In this way, we must learn to expect and ask all things from him and thankfully ascribe to him whatever we receive. Uh, that's the sum of the life that Calvin wants for us. Um, back to the black screen. This is the preview next week a little bit, but <laughs> all men promiscuously do homage to God, but very few truly reverence him. It is not him that they worship, but instead of him, the dream and figment of their own heart. Trust yourself is not a phrase you would hear Calvin say. And that's something that comes into contact with, I think, modern sensibilities that we have to think about. In no part of the world can genuine godliness be found, not even the Haverkamp Room at 1045 on the first Sunday of Lent. Um, That's the end there. I want to see if we don't have much time for questions, but if there are a few, I can take them now, or if if there are things that you want us to hit in the next couple weeks. So where we're going to go next week, we're going to talk about both this knowledge of God and the God's providence and sovereignty and then knowledge of ourselves, which will lead us to things... uh, you know, what about this predestination thing that you hear about Calvin? Um, it wasn't the topic that I really wanted to teach, but I found actually 
he doesn't run away from it. <laughs> um, in fact, he doubles down on it. Um, so it's something that I think we at least ought to attend to. So we're going to do that next week in class two. Uh, in class three, I'm leaving things a little open. There are about five different directions I could or could go. Uh, it will be right on the same weekend as the dessert and dialogue where we're going to hear, uh, I think, a very different understanding of what scripture is or maybe a complementary version of what scripture is. Uh, and that's, I think, Sunday night. So we'll have our class and then you'll go into his class. So I'm going to brainwash you and make you ask Calvin questions and see how Peter ends, see how Peter ends, it handles that. But we might talk about also Calvin ends, the very last pages of this book is actually about how we relate to civil, civic government in our, in our, <laughs> in our world. Um, kind of timely. Um, so that might be a way to go to, uh, Calvin's spirituality. We could talk about prayer. Uh, I kind of want to see how the next couple, you know, the next week goes. But if there's something you're like, no, I really want to talk about that, let me know. Uh, any questions so far about Calvin's life or what? Yeah. Patrick, I'm wondering, of course, we always hear many descriptions or ways in which we can consider the word love. Yeah. How would you consider or, or what would be your thought as to how Calvin would talk about love when he's having these statements uh, about the commandments and whatnot? Sure. Well, it's adoration of the, uh, I think there's, because we adore God out of love, then he, uh, he never says this, but I think there's an adoration of our fellow person. So that would be love in that respect. Um, and it's lived, it's active, it's in the flesh, it's, it's not separate. It doesn't withdraw, but engages. He has some critiques of monasticism of his day, you know, the, the, the monks and those that sort of separate from the world in order to attend to their, their purity of, of prayer and piety, he, he, he looks down upon that as a way of sort of escaping the realities of the world. So it's in flesh, it's incarnate, um, and it's in the details. Uh, Calvin, Calvin cared about the sewage system in Geneva probably as much as he cared about what Moses said in, <laughs> in Exodus. You know, that he really had a, a concern about humans' life now. So I think that's what love would look like in some respects. Yeah. Paul. If you're going to touch on uh, predestination, I'd be really curious to uh, uh, see a comparison between what Calvin thought on that subject and what Luther thought on that subject. Okay. I may not be able to do that this week, <laughs> but I'll try. Yeah, in the future. Yeah, but I, that's helpful. I'll see if, if, Cal, if Luther engages that question. Um, certainly we're going to hear from sort of the, the grenades that are thrown at that doctrine and Calvin throws them back. Um, so we'll see how he does there. Um, Phil and anything I missed that you would, would want to, okay. Okay. So I would like to close then. Which clock is right? That one's a little slow. And my anyway, it's about 1043. I do need to rub up, but, uh, you've been given, um, a hymn. Uh, which has accompanied me in my study. And so I want us to, as we close our class these next few weeks, to to sing, get us uh, primed for worship.